A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm David Kestenbaum, sitting in for Ira Glass. Hi, Jamal, can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, so are you still in front of the Canadian or not? Yeah, in front of the Canadian in the water. You're in the water right now. Yeah. This is a phone call between a man in California and a man standing in a canal outside the airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. That'll all make more sense in a minute. We had a totally different show planned for you today, but then we came across this phone call, and it just seemed important to put it on the air now. It's from Monday, before the explosion around the airport that killed dozens of people. But it's a snapshot, in a way, from the last hours of this war as the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, when who would get out and who would not was all still being decided hour by hour. So what we're going to do on the show today is we're going to hear the story of that phone call, and then we're going to play you some other stories about getting out, about people trying to extricate themselves from seemingly impossible situations. So the first guy you heard on the call, the guy in California, is Kirk Johnson. We've had him on the show before. And when things started to fall apart in Afghanistan, he reached out to us. Because years ago, he did reconstruction work in Iraq for the U.S. government. And since then, for a long time now, he has been trying to get people in Iraq and Afghanistan who have worked with the U.S. government and who are in danger out of those countries. He started an organization back in 2007 called The List Project. So these past weeks, Kirk has been on the phone constantly. And on Monday night, with his kids asleep in the other room, he had this series of phone calls which he recorded with the man you heard. His name is Ajmal. And Kirk is trying to talk him through the crowds and the confusion and chaos around the airport in Afghanistan to try to get Ajmal and his family past all the barriers, hopefully onto a plane and out of the country. All this is happening over the phone from half a world away. Nancy Updike here has known Kirk for many years. She talked to him about what happened. Here's Nancy. Kirk didn't know Ajmal before Monday night. He never met him. He just heard this was a person who needed help, one of the many people who needed help, whose names have been piling up in these threads Kirk has been on all week. Group chats with U.S. veterans, active military, current and former diplomats and aid workers, some Afghan citizens of the U.S. and other countries, all on their phones day and night, trying to help Afghans get out. Ajmal, can you hear me? Monday night... Kirk called Ajmal. Okay, so are you still in front of the Canadian or not? Yeah, in front of the Canadian in the water. You're in the water right now. Yeah. The Canadian is a Canadian soldier, and the water is the canal right outside the Kabul airport. The only thing Ajmal is trying to do here, the whole thing, is to slog his way to within earshot of the one Canadian soldier he can see and make himself heard above the crowd. Ajmal worked for an NGO funded by the United States, and now he and his family need to leave. Him, his parents, and his brother. They're luckier than most of the people around them because they have citizenship in another country. He and his family are all Canadian citizens. And please picture this young Canadian, Ajmal. Kirk sent me a photo of him in the canal. Ajmal is 27 years old. Pretty sure he could pass for 19 without his goatee. He's slight, big glasses, 
wearing his backpack in front of him on his chest like a nervous tourist. He is knee-deep in water. On one side of the canal is a growing crowd of Afghans. On the other are soldiers. And behind the soldiers is the path to get into the airport. Do you, do you know their names or no? The, no, the soldier's name? No. Please wait, okay? Okay, I'm waiting. Exactly how Ajmal came to be standing in a canal is, hours earlier he'd received an email with instructions for what to do, how to get out. He forwarded the email to Kirk. Here's the email that Ajmal got at 3.01 a.m. from... Um, from the Canadian government. Kirk read the key part. Important instructions. Go to the Baron Hotel immediately. All caps. Do not wear Western-style clothing. All caps. Be prepared to wait for many hours. Once inside, go to the garden and sit under the Canadian flag and wait for Canadian officials. Bring food and water if possible. That's the official process here. Get yourself to a hotel garden, sit down under a flag, do this immediately somehow, bring water. Ajmal and his family had gone to the place they thought was the Baron Hotel, but it was the wrong place. No Canadian officials they could see. It seemed to be all British people. So Kirk drew a map, looking at Google Maps, with the route Ajmal, his parents, and his brother needed to take through more crowds to get to the right place. The canal, believe it or not, was the right place, or as close as they were able to get. The canal is next to the Baron Hotel, and there was a Canadian soldier there. They could see him. He had a little Canadian flag on his uniform. But he kept stepping away. Okay, is he back? Uh, they're talking with the... He's talking to someone else right now. He's talking with someone else. I'm okay. waiting for him. Okay. Ajmal is trying to get the soldier's attention because, as I keep saying, Ajmal is a citizen of Canada. He is not a supplicant. He has the right papers. But Ajmal, who comes across as a cautious, rule-following sort of person, with his face mask pulled neatly under his chin in case he's ever inside again, that young man is stuck in a canal. I'll be patient. Don't worry. Canada! Canada! Other people in this same situation might have no trouble bellowing to get someone's attention. Soft-spoken Ajmal is saying, excuse me, excuse me, Canada. The soldier is talking to other people or walking even further away. Ajmal asks Kirk what words he should be calling out. What's a good word to call them? Because they are a bit far. Uh, you... When when you get an opportunity, Ajmal, okay? Can or can you hear me? Then I call you. No, I'm I'm gonna stay on the line with you. When when he finishes with this guy, you need to say that there is a a friend of a Canadian minister on the phone. Can you? Okay, okay, okay. Okay, a friend of a Canadian minister on the phone. It's true. Kirk, through his wife, is friends with a Canadian member of Parliament, a minister who at that point was fast asleep and had no idea this was happening. Kirk is trying to think of anything he can tell Ajmal to say to get the soldier's attention. Name dropping? Yes, sure, definitely. 
Where is he? Uh, he left it. Uh, I'm waiting for him. Okay, I don't want you to just say Canada. I want you to say I'm a Canadian citizen. Okay, okay. He doesn't know me. He's putting trust in me. I don't know him. I've already pushed him to fight through the crowd and jump into the canal. That was your idea to get in the canal? Yes. By the time of that phone call, that was already when he got to the back end of that crowd and saw thousands of people. He said, "There's, I can't do this. There's no, I have my parents here. They're, we're not, we can't get to the front. We're just going to have to try another day or, or wait for you to work your connections to get the Canadians to come out and, and, and find us. And I told them, this is over text, but I was like, they're not, they're not going to come out for you. You have to push through that crowd. And his sister was on the thread and a couple other um, people who, are, have been, who had been trying to, to help him. And they were messaging me saying, go easy on him. He was in the hospital last week with a panic attack. He's, you know, he's, you know, they were basically saying, um, he's already at the breaking point. But I knew that if he couldn't get within earshot of a Canadian soldier, he had there was there was nothing. Not knowing if he gives up today, whether or not the doors will be completely shut tomorrow. And the other thing that is is weighing on on me, but that I'm not telling him, is this dread of one rogue Talib opening fire into that crowd? One IED going off in that crowd. Less than 24 hours after we talked, a bomb was detonated outside the airport, and someone started shooting into the crowd. So everything came down to trying to get him in the right point on earth where his voice would be loud enough to be heard and strong enough to be listened to. You are in the right position. But I think they are leaving. What What do you... you okay. Please. I think they are leaving the stop. Please, please, talk to them. You have, you have to shout, I'm a Canadian citizen. Do it right now if you see them. Canadian! Not Canadian. Say Canadian citizen. You can't just say Canadian, Najmal. You have to say Canadian citizen. Okay. Canadian citizen. Keep saying that. Canadian citizen. If you have sharp ears, you can hear Kirk swearing under his breath all during this call, basically cursing his way through the stress. What's happening? I think the rash is increasing. I don't know what's happening. He's saying the crowd is increasing. It's increasing. The crowd is increasing. I know. I know, but you are in the right. You are in the right position. You can't give up right now. You. Okay. So, so I'm. 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 I'm inside. So, but but my family is down. Like they are. They are back. How far away are they? 
Kirk is groaning because he didn't realize Ajmal was separated from his family, his parents and his brother at this point. Even if they're not that far away right now, while Ajmal and Kirk are focused on connecting with this soldier, Ajmal's family could get pushed out of sight as the crowd keeps swelling and pushing forward. A bad scenario would be Ajmal ends up getting out, but his family stays lost in the throng. On these group threads, these chats Kirk is following, they are full of stories of family members getting separated. Ajmal hadn't wanted to bring his parents and his brother into this gross canal unless it was clear they were going to get out. He said the bottom of the canal had these slippery stones, and he worried one of his parents would fall and injure themselves. Now there's no time for Ajmal to break off and go get them. He has to keep trying to reach this soldier. You can't lose that spot. You have that, you have that soldier right in front of you. He's going to come back. So here, he's so far. I think it's impossible. Uh, is there any other way? You have, to, you have to stay in that spot and wait for him to come back. The fact that you just sent me that oh, picture. I'll wait. Yeah, I'll wait. Okay. Okay. I will call you back, okay? Call me back as soon as he gets close, okay? Okay, okay, okay. Just in case anyone is finding their ire at this point focused on Canada, I want to state the obvious and say that in the big picture, this was our show, the United States. Our plans, our timeline. Those were dictating the overall scene at the airport. Ajmal and Kirk got back on the phone. They'd been at it for almost six hours. Do not let him go away without saying you're a Canadian citizen and a minister is on the phone. A long minute goes by where Kirk can't tell what's happening. Ajmal keeps asking him, please wait, please wait. Don't, don't worry about me. Just do not let him leave without saying what I told you. Another half minute. Ajmal is fighting off despair. The soldier isn't responding to him. He's not responding to the soldier. What did you say? Are you still close to him? Another agonizing minute and a half. And then suddenly... Ajmal, can you hear me? Hello. Hello, who is this? Hello. Yes, who am I talking to? Who is this? This is Kirk Johnson. I've served with USAID in Iraq. Sorry, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, you have four Canadian citizens there. I'm calling on behalf of Melanie Jolie, who's a Minister of Economic Development for Canada. You have four Canadian citizens. They were asked to to go in there right now, and they've they've been pushed back several times yeah, so far. Yeah, we're gonna process them in the meantime. If there's a lot of people here, we will process them. Okay. I understand, but I I just need your assurance that they're gonna get through because the the, the one of the group is in poor health. So, and I know that Melanie Jolie is yeah, is yeah, she's. Will. The minister is wanting, she wants it. I need to be able to tell the minister that they're through. 
I'm, I'm going to look at his paperwork, and they will be able to get through, okay? Okay, I'm going to stay on the line. Thank you for because doing that, sir. I appreciate it. It's, it's, uh, I know I know you got your hands full. Here, so they have to be patient, okay? I know. I'll tell so them to say out. I'm grateful to you for your help, sir. Thank you. Okay. I'll give him the phone back. Okay. I'm going to stay on the line. It's not clear if the Canadian minister gambit carried any sway with this soldier. He mostly sounds like he wanted to get off the phone and get back to work. But Ajmal finally had his attention. And what a frightening degree of perseverance it took Ajmal to get to this point, where he could just hand someone his papers. And even perseverance most likely wouldn't have been enough without luck, without connections to these groups Kirk and others are part of or to someone else with power. How many people in the crowd around Ajmal had perseverance, even courage, but none of the luck? Okay, Ajmal, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, get your family close to you. Okay, I don't care. Tell, tell them to come. You may have to wait a while, but do not, do not be separate from them now. Do not move where you are, okay? Okay, thank you, sir. Okay. Okay, okay. Kirk and I did this interview a day and a half after this call with Ajmal ended, and Kirk was still waiting to hear if Ajmal and his family made it out. Then finally he got a text from him. It came through as Kirk and I were finishing up our interview. He, he, te- uh, I, he texted me, um, hang on. Oh, my God. What? They just got on a plane. They're... Ajmal and his family, they're on a plane. Yes. There's one part of Ajmal's story that took Kirk's breath away, even in the retelling. It was the way Ajmal ended up finding his brother after he'd made contact with the soldier. Because Ajmal's family, as Kirk had feared, had gotten lost in the crowd. You don't have to have brothers to to feel this, but um, my brothers are my best friends. And um, the way that I subsequently found out he was able to to get them was that he just called from the canal into this crowd asking his fellow Afghans to, to start calling his brother's name. And they all started shouting it out, and that's how they uh, found his, his brother and parents. And so they then got into the canal from there and joined him. You know, it's like, um, you know, like I, w- I want to feel, I want to feel like proud about this and uh, feel like this is a good story. But it's just um, there's so much more suffering that has happened in people that aren't getting through. I don't want people who hear this to think that, um, you know, people who are sort of discomfited by what they're hearing about this, who may not really be close to the situation or understand what's going on, to be like, oh, hey, I heard it's bad, but hey, all right, good. Now this guy, this has a happy ending. This has a happy ending for this guy and his family and for a small percentage of the lucky few that are getting through. Um, I, I fear that we're, you know, we're not going to 
really see the full toll of this when this is all over and we're we're just about at the end of this whole uh, disaster and at the start of something much darker, I fear. I fear that too. Nancy Updike is one of the producers of our show. Coming up, some of our favorite stories we've run about getting out, including a choose-your-own-adventure story about getting out of a relationship. Yeah, choose your own adventure on the radio, somehow. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm David Kestenbaum in for Ira Glass. This week on our show, getting out, stories of people making an out of seemingly impossible situations, or trying to anyway. Act two, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. So one of the things about trying to get out of an intense situation is that it can feel like every little decision you make might take you down the wrong path. Back when she was a teenager, one of our coworkers, Elna Baker, found herself in that position. She was trapped in a hotel room with her siblings, held there by a stranger. What happened was their family was all staying at this Marriott, but they're such a big family that the parents and the oldest kid were in one room. Elna and the three other kids were next door in their own room. There was Elna, who was 14 at the time, Julia, who was 10, Britton, who was 8, and Jill, who was 5. Elna was sharing a bed with her. Elna, who was in 8th grade at the time, was more or less in charge. And then one night, they're all asleep. It's the middle of the night. She told this all to Ira. My memory is that it's like I, I saw like a sliver of light which is what woke me up, and the sound of the door closing. And there was the feeling that there was someone standing at the foot of the bed. Mm-hmm. So I reached over and I turned the lamp on, and there was this woman. Wow. A- and uh, she looked startled to see us, and the first thing she said was, you're just children. I didn't expect you to be children. So that's pretty creepy. Right. What did you make of her saying that? I instantly felt like this is an unsafe situation. Yeah. Describe her. I remember she was my mom's age, so she was probably in her 40s. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, brown hair, white, kind of like frumpy looking. Like somebody you'd sit next to on the bus or something. Did she seem menacing? She seemed really distressed. She was crying, too. She was crying? She was crying, yeah. She cried the whole time she was there. She's crying and she said, you're children, I didn't expect you to be children. Yeah. And did the other kids get up? Everyone's wide awake. Like, I I distinctly remember my little brothers and sisters' faces because their eyes were just huge. But no one said anything. And are they sitting up, too, or are they just, like, laying flat still? They're still laying flat. Like, nobody moved. So what happens next? She's talking, right? this isn't how it was supposed to be. And, and, and she's also crying, and she's, she's talking to herself. It, it, I remember being very hard to follow what 
what she was saying. Yeah. And uh, eventually I said, um, I'm sorry, I think you have the wrong room. And she started to cry and she said, I know, I know. And I do this, I do this. I don't know why I do this. And then she's um, pacing back and forth uh, and, and kind of crying. And she sits down on the bed, at the foot of the bed. Did she seem crazy or did she seem upset? I, I mean, it's interesting. I was, I think I'd, I was too young and unfamiliar to identify what a crazy person seems like. Yeah. But what I could identify in that moment was that this person was unpredictable. So you guys like, oh, I've got to be really careful how I do this. I, I remember feeling that pressure. And in that moment, we're very, very, very aware of my brothers and sisters. Because they were so little. And yeah. that something bad could happen to them. And that the way that it wasn't going to happen to them was me. There were no adults there. I think it was the first situation I was ever in where there was, you couldn't defer to someone else to, to keep you safe or tell you what to do. And what do I do? And it had that quality of like, like time slows down and you're kind of, you're there, but you're also watching. So then I did the math in my head, and I was like, okay, I have a couple options. They are uh, cry for help, scream, but I don't think anyone will hear. Mm -hmm. Um, I I remember looking at how far away the phone was from me, Mm -hmm. and I realized I can reach and grab the phone, and I could call for help. Or um, even, like, like, if I could knock on the door where my sister was, Sister in the connecting room next door. I could at least, they would know something was happening in here, and they could get to us in time. Yeah. But all of that felt like um, like an escalation. Like I would provoke her. And so what can I do to not provoke her? And kind of play up the fact that we're children. And um, what I felt I needed to do was I needed to calm her down and become her friend. And if I could become her friend, she would leave and she wouldn't hurt us. Like get her to see you as a person. Just like make her think I was on her side. Because it didn't feel like she didn't see us as people. It just felt like, um, it felt dangerous and I didn't understand why. And I felt like the key to being safe was slowing everything down. And I remember her saying, like, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm here. I'm sorry I'm doing this. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember this, but my brother remembers that what she said was, I'm sorry, girls. I'm sorry, girls. And that his whole memory of this night was just being like, I'm a boy. She's <laughs> 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 <Just> so mad. <laughs> um, so I asked her, I said, um, are you okay? Is everything Okay. And that's, she kept, you know, going on about how her n- night was so hard. And I was like, I'm so sorry. That sounds really, really difficult. Um, and this is you trying to befriend her. Yeah, this is me trying to befriend her. 
But it's weird. I feel like I was hyper alert to like, if I can understand what's going on with her, I can help solve it. But I couldn't understand because it didn't make any sense. Did you feel sorry for her? I felt concerned for her. Yeah. And um, and then she took out her, out her purse and uh, she reached into her purse and then she gripped onto something. And I remember thinking like, oh no. Like what, the way, like I thought. Oh, like it's like a gun or something. Or a gun or a knife or something. I remember yeah. my heart just dropping. And then she pulled out a hairbrush and then she just started brushing her hair like at the foot of my bed. Wow. And uh, And at that point I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> this is like, right. uh, and I don't think she's going to leave. And then um, she sat on the vanity in front of the mirror at the desk, and she took her earrings off. And uh, Oh, wow. And she started, like, take, she took her shoes off. She, like, took her coat off. She was just, like, oh, like wow. making herself comfortable to, like, be here now. Right. And so I let her do all that um, and was sort of listening to her go on about what was wrong. And then eventually, after I felt like enough time had passed, I said, um, we, um, we have to wake up early to go to school tomorrow. And we're really tired, so I think we we should probably go back to bed now. And she was like, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm here, I'm here, I'm sorry, I'm here. And I said, um, no, it's, it's like totally fine that you're here. Almost like, you know, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. But um, do you mind uh, leaving now? And so I like very slowly stood up and walked over to the door and like every moment was like making sure I was safe and then I opened the door and she said okay okay and she put her shoes on and then she started to leave and just as she was about to leave I said oh you forgot your earrings and then she was like started crying all over again like it was this huge thing walked over to get the earrings and then sat back down on the bed and I remember thinking, like, God damn, why did I bring up the earrings? Like, we were so close to being safe. So then uh, then the whole thing, basically the whole thing started all over again, where I had to, like, listen to her cry, like, calm her down. And then finally I'm like, um, you know, we have to wake up early to go to school. Do you mind leaving? And I walked her to the door and... Uh, she walked out of the door, and then, like, as soon as she was out of the door, I just, like, like pushed the door as hard as I could to close it. And when I pushed it, like, like basically, like, slammed it shut, she screamed at the top of her lungs. And is there, like, a bolt or something on the door? I think I did bolt it after I slammed it shut. Uh-huh. And then I heard her screaming in the hallway, and then she ran down the hallway screaming, and then she ran back towards the door screaming. And uh, that must have been terrifying. It was so scary. And then, then it got was quiet. And then I heard this loud, like she's like banging on the door, like as hard as she can, right? And then I hear a voice, and it's my dad. And my dad's like, "Open the door! Open the door!" And I realize it's not her banging on the door. So I, I mm-hmm. open the door, and uh, my dad's standing there, and he's like, "Did you hear someone screaming in the hallway?" 
So then I tell him this whole story. I'm like, there's this woman. She was in our room. I tell him all the details. And he is furious. He was so mad. Uh, and then he told us to stay there, shut the door, don't open the door. And then he went downstairs and talked to the hotel about it. Yeah, and what did he learn? They tell him that she had been outside. She was crying. They asked if she was a guest there. She said yes. Her name was Elena Baker. And so they looked up the name. Elena Baker? Elena Baker, yeah. And your name is Elna Baker? Yes. Okay. But I don't believe this part of the story. I think someone at the hotel just said this to him to okay. cover. And then they gave her a key? And then they gave her a key. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, so the hotel offered him, you know, the whole stay for free, everything for free. And he's like, I don't care about your money. Like, I want you guys to do a formal investigation as to how this happened. Wow, that's such a white man takes charge move. Why does not white? Oh, point taken. (laughs) (laughs) Hispanic man. I was just thinking, like, like you just never hear like somebody be like, "I demand a formal investigation." You know what I mean? It's like, it's like he's a member of Congress or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, but that's what I mean. That's totally how my dad would like. That's my dad. Point taken. Okay. Um, and so they do a formal investigation, which they then send to my dad, and Mm, long after you've like gone from the hotel. Exactly, and. In it, there's a picture of the woman. And then there's her history. She had been in a psychiatric hospital and escaped that night, come to the hotel. And uh, she had a long history of breaking into people's homes. And, um, like, he's not certain about this part, so I don't know. He doesn't remember it. He doesn't remember, but he says that he he remembers there being, um, like, she had attacked people when she'd broken into their homes. That's what he remembers. That's what he remembers. Yeah. Yeah. That part of the story, the investigation, who the woman was, Elna only found that out a couple years ago when she asked her dad about it. At the time, back when she was 14, her parents kept all that from her and her brother and sisters. They didn't want them to dwell on it or make them afraid of the world. They didn't want that evening to become a bigger deal than it already was. And Elna says today, that worked. And it's funny, I've even as I've like told this story over the years, People are like, oh, that's so traumatic, or that's crazy. I don't think of it like that. How so? It just, it just was sort of like a, because nothing bad happened, it, it, it has no category for me, if that makes sense. It was, it's been easier, it was easier to just think like, oh, this one, this weird thing happened one night when we were in a hotel. In retrospect, would you have preferred if they had told you back when you were 14? No, I think it's good that I got to live in a world that I think is safe. On the other hand, she says, if they had made clear how much danger she was in, the family's memory of it and her memory of it wouldn't be of this weird event with no category, this random thing that happened one night. Instead, it would fit squarely into the category called victory, a solid win for a 14-year-old girl and a big religious family when she got that stranger out of their hotel room without anybody getting hurt. And Anna says she would have liked that win. When you're trapped inside a room with an unpredictable person, really all you got is your wits and your ability to read the situation and your judgment to guessing what'll work. Nice to show everybody that even a kid can make the right call sometimes. You have to pay attention closely enough. Elna Baker, one of the producers of our show, talking to Ira Glass. Act three, you can't go your own way. 
In her memoir, In the Dream House, Carmen Maria Machado wrote this chapter that's set up like a choose-your-own-adventure story, which I just thought was so smart when I read it. In it, she imagines different choices she could have made with a partner that she's in a bad relationship with, an abusive relationship. And one of the things it captures is just the mental energy that somebody in that situation can end up putting into trying to figure out what they should do or not do to avoid setting off their partner. A heads up that this excerpt includes a scene with sexual content. It's read for us by actor Zoe Winters. Page one. You wake up and the air is milky and bright. The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment, despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You were moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page two. If you tell her to wake you up next time your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page three. If you tell her to calm down, go to page five. I choose page two. Page two. I'm so sorry, you tell her. I really didn't mean to. I just moved my arms around a lot in my sleep. You try to be light about it. Did you know my dad does the same thing? The sleeping damsel swoon? So weird. I must have, are you really sorry? She says, I don't think you are. I am, you say. You want the first impression of the morning to return to you. It's freshness, it's light. I really am. Prove it. How? Stop doing it. I told you, I can't. Fuck you, she says, and gets out of bed. You follow her all the way to the kitchen. Go to page seven. Page seven. Breakfast. You scramble some eggs, make some toast. She eats mechanically and leaves the plate on the table. Clean that up she says as she goes to the bedroom to get dressed. If you stare mutely at the dirty plate, and all you can think about is Clara Barton, the feminist icon of your youth who had to teach herself how to be a nurse and endured abuse from men telling her what to do at every turn, and you remember being so angry and running to your parents and asking them if women still got told what was right or proper, and your mom said yes, and your dad said no, and you, for the first time, had an inkling of how complicated and terrible the world was, go to page 10. If you do as you are told, go to page 8. If you tell her to do it herself, go to page 5. Page 5. Are you kidding? You'd never do this. Don't try to convince any of these people that you'd stand up for yourself for one second. Get out of here. Go to the next chapter. You're out. Wait, no, let's try that again. I go to page eight. Page eight. As you're washing the dishes, you think to yourself, maybe I should put a tack on my forehead. Maybe I should be a better person. Go to page one. Page one. You wake up and the air is milky and bright. The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment, despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. 
When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You were moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page two. If you tell her to calm down, go to page five. If you tell her to wake you up next time your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page three. I go to page three. Page three. Baby, if this ever happens in the future, you can always wake me up and I'll go to the couch. I promise. I really don't mean to do it. I don't have any memory of it. I can't control how I move in my sleep. You are such a fucking cunt, she says. You never take responsibility for anything. Well, all you have to do is wake me up, you say, a kind of incoherent desperation zipping through your skull. That's it. Wake me up and tell me to move or sleep on the couch and I will do it. I swear to you. Fuck you, she says and gets out of bed. You follow her to the kitchen. Go to page seven. Page seven. Breakfast. You scramble some eggs, make some toast. She eats mechanically and leaves the plate on the table. Clean that up, she says as she goes to the bedroom to get dressed. If you do as you are told, go to page eight. If you tell her to do it herself, go to page five. If you stare mutely at the dirty plate and all you can think about is Clara Barton, the feminist icon of your youth who had to teach herself how to be a nurse and endured abuse from men telling her what to do at every turn, and you remember being so angry and running to your parents and asking them if women still got told what was right or proper, and your mom said yes, and your dad said no, and you, for the first time, had an inkling of how complicated and terrible the world was. Go to page 10. Page 10. That night, she p***s you as you lie there mutely, praying for it to be over. Praying she won't notice you're gone. You have voided your body so many times by now that it is force of habit, reflexive as a sigh. It reminds you of your first boyfriend, who p***ed you while watching porn. How he rutted and rutted, and then every so often lifted the remote to rewind something you couldn't see. Once, you turned your head over the lip of the bed and saw a tangle of upside-down limbs, and your brain couldn't make sense of them. You never looked again. You would just lie there silently, watching his face move over you. It was like being unfolded beneath the yawn of the planetarium as a kid. The sped-up rotation of the Earth, the movement of the stars, the constellations melting into and out of being. You shudder and moan with precision. She turns off the lights. You watch the darkness until the darkness leaves you. Or you leave it. To sleep, go to page 14. To dream about the present, go to page 13. To dream about the future, go to page 12. To dream about the past, go to page 11. I want to dream about the past. I choose page 11. Page 11. The first time it happened. The first time she yelled at you so much you were crying within 30 seconds from waking. A record. She said, the first 10 minutes of the day, I'm not responsible for anything I say. This struck you as poetic. You even wrote it down, sure you would find a place for it, in a book maybe. 
go to page 14. Page 9. You shouldn't be on this page. There's no way to get here from the choices given to you. Do you think that by flipping through this chapter linearly, you'd find some kind of relief? Don't you get it? All of this shit already happened, and you can't make it not happen, no matter what you do. Do you want a picture of a fawn? Will that help? Okay, here's a fawn. She is small and dappled and loose-legged. She hears a sound, freezes, and then bolts. She knows what to do. She knows there's somewhere safer she can be. Go to page 10. I don't want to go to page 10. Page 6. You shouldn't be on this page. There's no way to get here from the choices given to you. You flipped here because you got sick of the cycle. You wanted to get out. You're smarter than me. Go to page 10. Fine. I go to page 10. Page 10. That night she fucks you as you lie there mutely, praying for it to be over. Praying she won't notice you're gone. You have voided your body so many times by now that it is force of habit, reflexive as a sigh. It reminds you of your of rotation of the earth, the movement of the stars, the constellations melting into and out of being. You shudder and moan with precision. She turns off the lights. You watch the darkness until the darkness leaves you, or you leave it. To sleep, go to page 14. To dream about the past, go to page 11. To dream about the present, go to page 13. Page 13. You shouldn't be here, but it's okay. It's a dream. She can't find you here. In a minute, you're going to wake up, and everything is going to seem like it's the same, but it's not. There's a way out. Are you listening to me? You can't forget when you wake up. You can't go to page 14. I want to dream about the future. I go to page 12. Page 12. It's going to be all right. One day, your wife will gently adjust your arm if it touches her face at night, soothingly straightening it while kissing you. Sometimes you will wake up just enough to notice. Other times, she'll only tell you in the morning. It's the kind of morning you could get used to. Go to page 14. Page 14. You wake up, and the air is milky and bright. The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment, despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You were moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page two. If you tell her to wake you up next time, your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page three. If you toss back the blankets from your body and hit the floor with both feet and tear through the house like it's Pamplona, and when you get to the driveway, your car keys are already in your hand, and you drive away with a theatrical squeal of the tires never to return again, go to page 15. Page 15. That's not how it happened, but okay. We can pretend. I'll give it to you. Just this once. Turn to page 16.
page 16, in end. In the pit of it, you fantasize about dying, tripping on a sidewalk and stumbling into the path of an oncoming car, a gas leak silently offing you in your sleep, a machete-wielding madman on public transit, falling down the stairs, but drunk, so you flop limb over limb like a marionette and feel no pain. Anything to make it stop. You have forgotten that leaving is an option. Zoe Winters reading a chapter from Carmen Maria Machado's memoir, In the Dream House. Carmen has a comic series out now called The Low, Low Woods from DC Comics. You can see Zoe Winters in season three of HBO's Succession, which is out in October. Act four, Blue Kid on the Block. This last story is about what happens after you get out. In this particular case, when you get out of Rochester, New York. The kid in this story, who we're going to call Leo, it's not his real name, his family had moved to an entirely different state, and he was not happy about it. At the time, Leo was just starting seventh grade. He was having a harder time finding his place in middle school than other middle school kids because, you know, he was new to town. But also because Leo still loved Rochester. He loved his school there. He loved his friends. Suddenly, everything about his life was different. And according to Leo, much worse. The signature on his Gmail account now read, Rochester is much better, in big red letters. Sarah Koenig knows Leo and his parents. She visited them at home to see how Leo was doing. This is how much Leo does not want to be here. When I got to his house, he was on the sofa with a laptop, investigating Greyhound bus schedules. His mother was going to drive him and his sister back to Rochester for the Columbus Day weekend, but not until Saturday morning, and Leo wanted to get there Friday for more time with his friends. A multi-stage negotiation followed with his dad. For one thing, a bus ticket cost money. That's not, the, that's not a problem. I not have for you. Money. No, that wasn't a problem for you. No, but... The, there isn't one. Right? There isn't one that's not at 6.15 in the morning, and you won't let me miss school on Friday. The bus takes eight hours. Even if you left at noon, you'd eat it. Yeah, you're going to do the math. That's excellent. Never mind that the bus takes twice as long as driving, and never mind that Leo would be alone and have to change buses, and that his parents had no intention of letting him go through with this plan. But it's the kind of negotiation you indulge when your kid is miserable. And Leo is miserable. He told me right away he was, and that he had been from the moment he got here in August. Is this the first time you've in your life where you felt like you've been sad about something for this long? I think so, except for maybe when my other cat died. My old cat. And does this feel worse than that? Yes. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I've never had long periods of sad until now. I don't know. I don't know anyone here, really. And I think it's just everything in general that's overwhelming. Back in Rochester, Leo had known all his best friends since kindergarten or before. They played together at school, after school, on weekends. Everybody knew everybody. Everything was comfortable. And as a sixth grader in his old school, he and his friends were at the top of the heap. They wore green sashes in the morning and got to be door monitors for the younger kids coming into the building. So imagine now, Leo takes a school bus for the first time to his new school, a sprawling one-story building full of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. Leo's small for his age, only a hair taller than his sister, who's only nine years old. On day one, he knows exactly no one. It was much louder than my old school. Much louder. 
people talking, people closing and opening lockers, people walking. It was just noise. Just older kids, more kids, because uh, my old school was tiny. Leo is between. He's old enough to decipher Greyhound bus schedules, but not old enough to actually travel on one by himself. And old enough to know that if he's going to survive in middle school, he has to make friends. But that making those friends stands to be significantly more complicated than it was back in Rochester. Leo's sister, Auden, is in fourth grade. He says she's not having as hard a time of it. She hasn't been alive as long. She hasn't made as deep connections. And she's already met some a friend in her school. I think it's easier to make friends in elementary school than in middle school. Oh, really? Why? Because people care less about who you are. What do you mean by that? The older you get, the more you judge people on their looks, their background, their how they act, like what cool is for kids. Because in kindergarten, you could just walk up to someone and say, "Do you want to be my friend?" and they would then that would be it, but it's harder. I just think people are more wary before they open up. They like, I don't know, in first grade, I, if I met someone, I wouldn't really care who they were. I would just care if they were nice or not. The day I interviewed him, Leo had a couple of breakthroughs. He emailed his parents during the school day to tell them the first piece of good news they'd had from him. Until that day, the emails had mostly been three desperate words. I feel awful. Without even a period at the end to make the feeling finite. It was an endless awful. But on this Thursday, he wrote to tell them the mashed potatoes they serve in the cafeteria were great, followed by four exclamation points. Second, and this was the big news, he asked another kid if he wanted to come over. Leo told me he'd thought about it first for a few days, then finally emailed the boy, whose name is Devin, another seventh grader. But now, Leo didn't want to call Devin's house to finalize a plan. He dreaded the awkwardness of the phone. So his dad called Devin's parents, introduced himself as Leo's father. He goes to school with your son, Evan, and we were, uh, Devin, I'm so sorry, Devin. I'm getting the evil look from my son, I apologize, but we're hoping Devin can come over on Sunday. Thanks. I panicked. You fool. How'd that go? Not well. I had thought Leo might be upset about it, maybe get sulky. But here he was cracking up, joking with his dad. It was such a relief to hear him laugh after he'd been so solemn in our interview. And I thought, this is all going to be okay. He's going to snap out of it. He's almost there. An afternoon with Devin is going to do the trick. Then Sunday came. Okay, now I have three health again. I could tell you could tell your wolf to Okay, I'm going to tell my wolf to attack then. Leo taught Devin how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And the wolf lands on its feet. Yay, go Wolfie, go mm-hmm. Wolfie, mm-hmm. go Wolfie. <laughs> I am so weird. On the drive home, Leo and Devin talked nonstop, a gentle rat-a-tat one-upmanship, emanating from deep inside a computer game. I am, an, I am a blood elf warlock. Warlocks are fun. Can you summon your imp yet? Uh, yeah, you start with him. Oh, right. I like, um, I had a goblin shaman. I'm a night elf druid. And I can turn into a cat at level 8, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And at level 12, you get a bear. Yeah. And then By the time they dropped Devin off, they were uh, giggling. Yeah, you it's start funny. With Our cat responds to whatever you call. We said, his name is Pippin, we can call him football. <laughs> you 
Thanks for coming over. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me. See you tomorrow. So a perfect day, right? Leo's parents were relieved, hopeful, but no. It's Wednesday. You had your friend over on Sunday. How'd it go? Yeah, went okay. Yeah, went okay. Has it changed anything about uh, being here? A little bit. I don't think very much, but a little bit, yeah. What's changed? What's the little bit? Then I know someone at school. It helps. Not all that much, but sort of, yeah. And this is when I realized I'd underestimated the depth of Leo's gloom, that he greets every morning of every school day with dread, and not because he's being bullied or anyone's being mean to him. I feel sick because um, I know that I have the whole day ahead of me, and then I have the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day ahead of me. Does it pass once you get to school? No, not really. It usually... um, increases to a climax around lunchtime and then I actually I've been throwing up recently and then it just stays that level of sickness until I get home you're kidding me you're throwing up at school yeah oh that's awful in the bathroom or where yeah in the bathroom usually at lunch I feel really bad and I go to the bathroom and I throw up has that happened this week today it did do you tell your parents, like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, or do you just, you know you have to so you don't say anything? Uh, no, I throw a screaming fit. Every morning? Yeah, pretty much. I didn't today. What was different about this morning? How come you didn't today? I felt resigned, and I knew that I would have to go anyways, so I gave up. Here's the curse of being almost 13 old enough to understand his life will supposedly get better with time, but not old enough to really believe he's going to feel any differently than he does right this minute. Since making friends with Devin, Leo is one step toward being the kid he wants to be, someone with pals, someone who's comfortable again. But he says right now, he's just worried he's going to be throwing up all year. Sarah Koenig, she's the host of Serial. In the years since this story first ran, Leo has made many friends. They've become immersed in the world of theater and has finally forgiven their parents for the move. Leo did return to New York, though. They graduated from NYU this past spring. Today's program was produced by Diane Wu and Lena Masitsis. The people who put the show together today include Bim Adewumni, Elna Baker, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Aviva DeKornfeld, Seth Lind, Stowe Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, and Chloe Weiner. Our managing editor, Sara Abdurrahman. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Harrison Nesbitt, Will Yerman, Hillary Appleman, and Maximo Berryman-Chase. 
Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks to our boss, Ira Glass. You know, he says he's on vacation, but he keeps coming into the studio, making these tiny little edits to our stories. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm here. I'm sorry I'm doing this. I'm sorry. We'll be back next week with more stories of This American Life. Girl, there's a better life for me and you.